Welcome to the Create What You Speak podcast. Join me as we have a real life discussion on how to change your life by changing your thoughts. Remember, question everything, trust yourself, and find your truth. Welcome to the Create What You Speak podcast. My name is Sloan Fremont, and I'm your host. Joining me today is Jerry Hussey, author of the book, Awaken Your Power Within. Let go of fear, discover your infinite potential, and become your true self. In his groundbreaking book, Jerry brings us an honest and mind-blowing journey that dares us to ask deeper questions about the mind and soul. Jerry, welcome to the Create What You Speak podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, a pleasure to be with you. I, I loved your book. I have to say right off the bat, if there was ever a book that I felt like um, could help people ask all the right questions, it's all in your book. Like that's what, as I was going through the book, that's what I thought about the whole thing. Um, so let's start out maybe by telling the audience a little bit about yourself and what led you to write your book, Awaken Your Power Within. Um, yeah, I, I think it's been a life journey as people in the book will find out. And a lot of people who know me in my adult version as Jerry, this performance psychologist, I've worked a lot with Olympic champions, world champions, European champions, um, and then I started working in the corporate environment. Uh, and then I started doing events for the for the public around, you know, mindfulness, around the mind-body connection, uh, looking at the neuroscience of the brain. So people would have seen me as this very confident guy that seemed to have his, his act together. Right. Um, but that's only because I was forced to go there. And people who read the book will realize that at the age of 11 was the first time I thought about committing suicide myself, mm -hmm. which is a, is a very young age. But anyone who has lived with that heightened anxiety or that, you know, that just that nonstop, relentless sense of fear and panic, um, yeah. even though I didn't know what it was, I, I just knew I couldn't live like this. And between the ages of 11 and 15, I think the biggest challenge I had every day was not to end my own life and to find some something to live for and, and um, I had this voice in my own head that says you know I was useless and I was worthless and my life didn't mean anything and I was a failure and and I was unloved and I don't really know at the time where that voice came from but so at that point you know you're faced with um, you know I had to tell my parents so I just said something's not right you know I my heart is racing I think I'm going to die sometimes and people who suffer from that level of anxiety will understand that. And, uh, and I couldn't understand that even when I was in a happy environment, so even at my birthday party, I would be extremely sad, even though I had nothing tangible to be sad about. Yeah. Um, and my parents then brought me to every doctor they could find, every GP, and my parents didn't have a lot of money growing up. And I remember at one point they spent over $300 bringing me to a doctor and I felt so guilty because they didn't really have that money and maybe they borrowed it. I don't know where they got it. Yeah. But every doctor was just doing my blood tests. Eventually we got one guy that did a brain scan and everything was coming back normal. Everybody was saying I was healthy and the pivot point in my life came when at the end of this doctor, we paid $300 for, they did the brain scans, they did everything. And, uh, and then he comes back in the room and he's reading his, as he walks into the room, he's reading your notes. He sits down for literally 25 seconds. He looks my mother in the eye and says, good news. This is a perfectly healthy young man. And he goes to stand up as much to say, okay, leave now. Yeah. 
But my mum, you know, being a loving mum, seeing her son crippled with something, not knowing what it was, said, but like, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? He's not well. And I never forget what he said. He said, if you want my honest opinion, this is a perfectly healthy young man and he's making this up so he doesn't have to go to school. Oh, oh my now, God. That was a kick in the stomach. I felt like a yeah. failure. I felt like I'd wasted so much of my parents' time and energy but the next morning, my mother knew that I'd been crying all night. And she said to me, what's wrong? What's the matter? I said, I just feel like such a failure. I've let everybody down. She said, you haven't let everybody down. And she said, we're going to get to the bottom of this. And when we get to the bottom of this, not only will you be happy, but if you figure this out, and I'll never forget what she said, you could help millions of people. Mm. Oh, my gosh. That gives me chills. I know. And I said to her, but the doctor said there's nothing wrong with me. And my mother, who's an amazing human being, said, if you think I'm taking the word of a doctor I never met <laughs> over my son, mm-hmm. you don't know who I am. Mm-hmm. So at 15, I started looking for books and secondhand bookshops on the mind, the brain. What is the mind? What is the brain? What is anxiety? At the age of 16, 17, I came across this idea of the gut brain axis. I started understanding that your gut and what we eat plays a huge role in in our brain. Mm -hmm. And I came across this concept of neuroplasticity, that the brain can be reshaped, rebuilt. So everything I've done since is an extension of the world that I was really throwing into. But when I got into it, I just said, wow, everybody should know this. How come we're not being taught this in school? Right. And as you know better than me, the science of the body, the science of the brain is so exciting that when we understand it, we become limitless. Right. We're not really taught that. No, and it all starts to make sense finally. And, you know, the, at the beginning of your book, your story was so powerful. And I, would, I won't go too far into it because I want to ask you some other questions. And we don't, these interviews always go really fast. But um, you talk about, you know, you were in the hospital for a period of time and you were surrounded by older people who were on death's doorstep. And how that, that experience and that understanding changed you. And you mentioned in the book about how, when you left the hospital and you went to that coffee shop and you sat there and you were like, you know, I'm going to figure this out, right? I'm, I'm going to change today is a different day for me. I'm doing something different. And you're like your relentlessness with this. I think it, I just want to mention this part of it because, you know, ha- having those thoughts of suicide at such a young age, but being relentless for yourself, fighting for yourself, even with those feelings there wanting to bring you down and, and say, I'm done, it's over. You didn't give in to that. You you chose the the, the route to be relentless for yourself and, and advocate for yourself and, and this journey that you've been on. I, I think that that part of it is, is so inspiring. So I just wanted to touch on that for just a second before we get into the million other questions that I have for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. And, uh, you know, I think I I was fearless for myself. In my book, I talk about a little exercise where you go back and reconnect with your eight-year-old self. Uh, I got that. I think I got it from Louise Hay, who was instrumental in my life. Mm -hmm. Yes. Big help for me, too. And for a long time, I thought I was useless. I thought I was no good. So I had this inner critical voice constantly berating myself and Mm -hmm. saying things to myself that I'd never said to anybody else. and And when I started to listen to this, and really became aware of this narrative that I was building in my head. And then Louise Hay talked about your eight-year-old self. So I literally dug out a picture of myself, which I had very few of, but I dug out a picture of myself when I was one 
And the picture was me standing on a washing machine about to blow out this cake. And I was just this blonde haired, beautiful little boy who just wanted to be happy. Yeah. So I put that picture. And then every time I started to talk negatively, I would look at that child. So sometimes we lose sight of who we are. And I'd love to say I fought for myself. I, I, I didn't know who I was. Yeah. But I, I fought for that child. I yeah. fought for that child to feel loved. I fought for him to smile. And I also fought because it's amazing we know these little ignition moments. My mom said, you could help millions of people. And from the age of 15 or 16, that has been my life's mission. Yeah. Because there are too many doctors out there who will examine the physical and they will tell a child, an innocent, beautiful, suffering child, that they are making this up. Yeah. So for me, I said, no more. They are not making this up. This is real and I will prove it's real. And I will also change how medicine view the non-physical. Yeah. So... It's a mix of being inspired for myself, being, being fighting for my eight-year-old self, but also knowing that other people have been left in the dark here. Yeah, that there's and, something uh, bigger and that you can impact that. You know, I think so. I think, we, yeah. I think we all have that mission in life. Yeah. I think we're yeah. all born to be of service and every one of us can change the world if we yes. dare to be brave enough. Yes, I agree. And that, you know, you talk about that fear and anxiety and I know that so well. I mean, <laughs> I think most of the listeners w- could say the same thing. And you share so much wisdom in your book about how there's something more powerful available to us at any time, right? But most of us, I, I think one of the biggest realizations for me was when I understood, and I can't remember if it was Louise Hay or who I got that from, but that we didn't have to believe everything that we thought, right? We don't have to believe our own thoughts. I remember fighting with myself six months, nine months, a long time after I heard that, I'm like, that can't be true. Like yeah. I, I just couldn't get past that. But once I started to soften up to that and I was like, wow, like how my world changes completely now. If I can, if I accept that I don't have to believe everything I think. Right. And so that, that fear and that anxiety is so powerful. Can you talk about your experience with that and really what you've come to learn about it in your own life? Yeah. Well, I think first and foremost, you know, I think there's a narrative out there that, you know, anxiety or depression is some type of chemical imbalance. Mm-hmm. Show me the evidence. And I've been saying this for 30 years and I've said it in room full of doctors and psychiatrists who wouldn't accept it. There's still no evidence. Yeah. I'm not saying that for time or I'm not ruling out, you know, medicine, but there is no evidence. So people have to understand that there is no evidence that can clearly connect physical chemical imbalance. So we have to look a little bit deeper. So anxiety is something to do with the central nervous system. It's something to do with an overactive sympathetic nervous system. So your sympathetic nervous system is a natural inbuilt system that is fight or flight. It's, it's, it's reactionary right. and it's, 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 it's a defense mechanism. And once we enter into the sympathetic nervous system, our heart rate goes up, our brain starts releasing cortisol, adrenaline, neuroadrenaline, or adrenal gland spike, our immune system switches down, our breathing rate changes and goes up. Mm-hmm. It's everything that anxiety is. Right. So now we begin to realize that everything that is anxiety is simply an overactive sympathetic nervous system. 
Now, unfortunately, most people have never been told that, and most people have never don't know the difference between the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. Mm-hmm. So for me, what anxiety is, it's an unresolved fear. Something we heard, something we saw, something we encountered, something we thought about triggered the body into a defensive uh, state of fear. Right. And because it has never been resolved, the buttons in the nervous system, in the adrenal glands, in the brain chemistry is constantly keeping us in, in heightened alert, heightened threat state, waiting until the danger is resolved. Right. Now, people need to know, also know that your brain, your central nervous system, your immune system responds not to what's actually real out there. But you respond in the same way to a perceived threat, the memory of a threat mm-hmm. as a real threat. So in the absence of a real threat, your body doesn't know it's not real. Right. And you're running that that that. Yeah. Me- that memory line and think if you have multiple multiples of those going on at the same time, right? <clears throat> something with your job, something with your spouse, something with your family or whatever, right? And we have multiple lines of those running at the same time. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing what we can do to our own selves with our minds, right? It's massive. And, and I, I think when you say, you use a lovely line there, where you have this narrative, this story, this song playing over and over again. So you, you know, when we look at the nervous system, what sends the nervous system into this heightened state of anxiety is either a threat, fear, or simply fatigue, mm-hmm. simply fatigue. Mm-hmm. So the body, the mind, the brain can't distinguish between a threat or fatigue. It's all just a load. So the more we become tired, the more the body tries to keep going. So it starts to drive itself to. And what drives that level of fatigue? processed food number one if we became aware of what's in our food and i've been saying this for years yeah food companies need to be tackled (laughs) because now we know stress and processed food are probably the biggest contributors to all deaths on the planet yeah so when we look at food when we look at the intake of caffeine when we look at that's the first major stuff that can because every single cell in your body is made from the food you eat. Right. So you literally become what you eat. Yeah. So in order to sustain energy, in order to sustain your adrenal glands, in order to have, you're not having this insulin spikes, we need good, healthy, wholesome food. Processed food creates these insulin sugar spikes, which depletes us of energy. So that's one thing. The second thing that gives us great energy, things like meditation, yoga, and breathing. They sound so simple, and yet most people aren't doing these things. So we're pushing, we're going, we're phone, we're email, we're lots of stuff that puts us into the sympathetic. But when do we stop and recover? When I worked with athletes, we pushed them hard in training, and then we recover them. And we discovered that the recovery was more important than the training. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We don't recover. We don't have, particularly in the corporate world, there's not a a recovery. So that's one thing about anxiety. It can simply just be fatigue. Now, the other one is it's trauma. It can be lots of little traumas. But for me, the greatest trauma of all is the feeling of being unloved or unlovable. Yeah. And deep down, sadly, for so many of us, when we look in the mirror, we don't see someone we love. We don't see someone that we speak kindly to every day. We don't see someone that we make time for every day. 
In fact, we're always trying to prove ourselves to something or somebody. We're always trying to find something or have something so that we can feel enough. Right. You're enough right now. Right. Yeah. So I, I think that internal self-image is so important. And for many of us, just that feeling of being unloved is actually what drives our anxiety. Yeah. I mean, I often look around and, and you know, most people are walking around in some state of trauma in some way, right? In, in, in varying degrees, whatever it is, little ones, big ones, whatever it might be. And people act from that space a lot of times, right? And so it's when we're, and when you were talking about food and eating, you know, properly to, to sustain ourselves, what came to mind when you were talking about that was like, it, it, to me, it almost has to start with this, this acceptance of, of being willing to love yourself enough to do these things for yourself. Right. Because a lot of times these, this pushing and constant going, and we have to, like you were mentioning with the athletes where they they're pushed to the limits, but then there's also that pullback, that balance, right. That, that gives them the recovery and, and recovery is not encouraged in, in, in most of the world. It's not encouraged in the corporate world, right. It's push harder, push harder. And in that pushing harder, sometimes I think when we, when we think about caring for ourselves, it's almost that pushing harder has taken on the definition of how to care for yourself or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. because that's, that's what's encouraged. That's what other people are quote doing. So if they're doing it and they have this life and they look so great on the, on the surface, then maybe I should do that too. Right. There's yeah. no, no balance there. No, we wrongly linked productivity and busyness to self-worth. So yeah. if I get a load of stuff done, I had a good day. And the day where I get nothing done was a bad day. So we have outlawed just being. So what are you doing at the weekend? If someone has a great plan and doing this and going to the beach, we have a picnic and going to a movie and then I get home, then I'm going out, then I'm going to the bar, then I'm having for drinks. Gee, that's a great weekend. The guy that's just sitting watching movies, that's a bad weekend. But really when we sit, what's going on here? This person that's always doing something, this person that's doing 10 things at the weekend. Yeah. What's that doing to the immune system? What's it doing yeah. to the sense? So we can disguise, if we're doing lots of good things, we can disguise distraction. So what I say is busy is the enemy of excellence. Yeah. And then distraction is the disease. Because when we're distracted, when we can't be still, we're missing the universe as it unfolds. Yeah. Life is roughly 900 months and we sleep 300, which means we roughly get 600 waking months on this planet. And for me, half those are gone already. So I'm looking at less than 300 months left to go. So what am I rushing towards? Yeah. Yeah. Why would, would I not want to slow time down, become more present with a hug, more present with the people I love? So for me, this idea of busy and distracted, it's the opposite to how we should be living our life. Yeah calm and present yeah but when people become present what we're finding is people are finding it hard to be by themselves yeah there is a disconnect within people between the person that i truly am and the person that i'm trying to be between the job that i'd really love to do and the job that i'm doing between the relationship that i'm in and the relationship So we settle rather than going after the life that we dream about. We go after the life that we think other people would want us to have. Or we go after the life that we think would make us successful in other people's eyes. 
So therefore, we value social affirmation more than personal expression. And we start to suffocate and stagnate our very spirit, our very soul, the essence of who we are, becomes stagnated. So even when you're busy and you have the beautiful house and the beautiful car, and then you sit still, that little voice comes alive and says, but you know we're not happy. Yeah, what are we doing here? Yeah. What are we doing? Why are we doing this for? Yeah. You cannot outrun the things that are in your heart. And you cannot outrun the things in your mind. You can run every marathon on the planet. You can climb every mountain. And the moment you stop, your inner voice, your soul is going to speak to you. We have to connect our life with our soul. Yeah. And that, I want to switch gears and go to another topic because, um, this was to me probably one of my favorite parts of your book when you talk about consciousness in the brain and your mind. And so in the book, you say um, how consciousness doesn't lie in the brain and that our mind is not our brain, right? So you have all these distinctions for all that. And that was so fascinating to me because I, I, re- I reread and read those pages again because I was trying to, I, it makes sense to me and I get it, but yeah. I was trying to let that sink in so that I could understand how, knowing this now, how do I go forward? Like that's a different way to think about your life. And so Mm -hmm. when we, and then you also mentioned about how we have this element of being aware that we have this observer part of ourselves too. Right. So we have all these parts that I think we're taught are all lumped together as quote the brain, right. That's all lumped in the brain, but I love how you dissected that. So can you go into that a little bit and explain to listeners? Yeah. I mean, this surprised me as well, you know, so from when I was growing up, you believe everything was in the brain. And you believe that the brain controlled everything. But when you dig deep and you dig into the real science of the gut, you realize that the gut has neurons just like the brain. Yeah. You realize that there's a connection between the mind and the brain. It's called the gut-brain axis. And for years, people told us that it was one directional, that the brain up here made the decision and it sent it to the gut. Now we know. Sorry, my, my laptop battery, I just make sure it's okay. <laughs> so now we know that the gut is capable of making conscious decisions by itself. And we know that that gut brain axis is actually bidirectional. So there's a two-way process of communication. So in every decision you make, your gut is contributing to it. Then we go a little bit deeper and we look at neurocardiology, which means the heart has neurons by itself as well. And we begin to realize that when we make decisions, when we think about something, it's not just your brain and skull at all. There is something much bigger. We know then that the skin is sensing, sending senses all the time. So when you get a sense of something or a feeling of something or an intuition, if you think that's just coming from the brain and your skull, yeah. you've missed the whole point. Yeah. Yeah. So the first thing about the brain is uh, the brain in your skull is really important. But it can't really do what it does without the the gut, which is now known as the second brain or the heart. So when we talk about bringing the mind into coherence, it's about bringing the the brain in the skull, the gut, the body into a state of coherence, which is a state of flow. Mm -hmm. So that's the first part. And then the second part to realize is that what neuroscience is beginning has shown us is that everything in the brain is chemical or electrical. So that's what it is. And it, mm-hmm. if you look at brain images, it looks like a beautiful electrical storm in space. It's an amazing thing. And every thought is an electrical signal that's fired through a neuron. And then when you have a, a corresponding or connected thought, it, it links from one neuron to another and we create neurological pathways. So every time we say something or do something, 
we fire that signal that wraps that pathway together and they, they get connected. So there's constant electricity and chemistry coming on in the brain. But what we need to ask is, is the brain generating that electricity? Because your thought is the brain. Right. Your thought is what enters the brain. Now, when I heard neuroscience saying that, hold on a second here. The thought enters the brain. Yes. You ask a neuroscientist from where? And that's where they have to put their hand up and say, we don't know. Yes. And in fact, only this year, in one of the biggest scientific journals in the world, the two questions they said, the two hard questions of, of science are, how did the world exist? Because the Big Bang Theory, is, it's kind of coming unstuck very fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And secondly, where does consciousness exist? So the simplest way to explain this is, if anybody goes into t- on your TV tonight, and I don't know if I'm allowed to mention any, whatever your cable provider is, let's say it's, I don't know, let's say it's Netflix. So you have a cable that goes from your box into the TV. The TV will display whatever the box shows it. Mm-hmm. So the TV is a really clever piece of equipment. It receives a signal. It makes sense of the signal and it broadcasts the signal. But if, if you pull the cable out of the TV, then what's left on the TV? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. If you stop the signal from going to the brain, the brain has nothing happening. When we go a little deeper with the analogy of the TV, if you're watching a funny movie on, on the TV, does the TV start laughing? No. <laughs> Is the TV even aware it's a TV? No. Mm-mm. Does the TV know you're in the room? No. Some smart TV might, but most TVs, no, I don't think yeah. so. So the brain has no awareness. The brain does not know it's you. So this is so fascinating to me because it's such a different way to look at our, at, at everything, right? At everything. And so what is, would you say then the mind is, I think you even say in the book, the mind is the mind, the body in that energetic field around us that then sends the signal to the brain. Is that how you would explain it? Well, if you strictly go down the scientific route, what I can say is the mind is not the body. It's yeah. not the brain. It's not your shoulder. Science simply doesn't know. Science can tell you what the mind is not. But then science is unwilling to take the next step in answering, what is it then? We know where energy feels. Yeah. The truth is, the thing that makes you you. So when you think, there's a part of you that is listening to you thinking. Yeah. When you have a thought, there's a part of you that can hear that thought. Right. So if you really try to identify where that, where that awareness is, it's almost like it's not in the body. So we have to really understand that the mind is not in the body. What blows, it, what blows our mind is when we realize that our body is in the mind. But that's not surprising because if you go back to Einstein, what he's proven is every single thing in this universe is energy. Yeah. And energy can exist as a wave or a particle. Mm-hmm. But even the atom is 90% empty space. Even matter is just energy in a different form. So everything that's physical has its origin from an energy field. And everything moves from non form or pure energy into form and then back into pure. So when we apply these simple scientific principles to the universe, Mm -hmm. to Elon Musk and these guys, that makes perfect sense. But we forgot to apply it to ourselves. Yeah, yeah. 
So we are energy fields. Now, that shouldn't be surprising because right. if you listen to the word psychology, psyche, psychology, ology means study of, and psyche means soul. Neuroscience studies the brain and the central nervous system. Psychology, psychology studies the soul. Mm-hmm. We've known we are soul. We know we're spirits. We know people talk about there's a great spark. There's a great connection. We know all of this. Right. But we got so caught up in our limited scientific view that we began to believe that unless we can see it scientifically, it can't exist. But even now, science and thermodynamics, the second principle of thermodynamics is entropy. Even entropy, even those hard scientists are, are, have run out of road and they can't prove that consciousness is in the brain. But they're unwilling to say where it is. So whether they right. choose to believe in a soul or not, well, that's another question. But for everybody listening to this, I want you to know that you, the part of you that feels joy and love and happiness is not in your brain. The brain is incapable of feeling an emotion. Sure, the brain can release a chemical like people say, well, I feel happy because of serotonin. But when you drink alcohol, the alcohol doesn't get drunk. So serotonin is incapable of feeling happy or sad. Ice doesn't feel cold or warm. The brain doesn't feel. It just produces chemicals. Yeah. You feel. And that's where... The future of medicine, that is where the future of psychology is moving back to its beginning, to psychology, the soul. And when you say you feel, so when we feel cold or we feel happiness, so that's our mind experiencing that? That's your mind. That is your mind. mind. Your mind is the total collection of the physical first and foremost, the brain, the gut, the skin, all of that physical senses. Yeah that relates to this physical world, but we also have a part of us that is not just of the physical senses. So there is a knowingness, there is an awareness, there is like, what is consciousness? Yeah, that you get those hits, right? Yeah. Like a tree doesn't have consciousness and we'd all say yes. So then when you ask people, well, what is consciousness? As humans, we have this neocort, we have something different. And when you change your thoughts, you change the structure and function of your brain. So the brain is only responding to you. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it, I, I, this is just so fascinating. It's so mind-blowing because I know this from my own experience, how I, I completely changed my life by changing my thoughts. I, I, this was about five or six. Actually, it's why I started the podcast because I wanted mm. to share that with people that if I did it, you could do it too. There was mm. nothing different about me other than the fact I just did it. And so that... I know 100% without a doubt that is completely true because I've proven that time and time again in my own life. And what, what I think what's amazing, what you're clarifying for me is that you're even proving it more, proving the point that I already knew about that was true more, but also this, this dissection of these parts of us that have often been blended together into one and this dissection of these parts. It's like, we have this, um, to me, we can start to look at each part a little bit differently and and pay attention to the parts rather than smashing everything together as a whole. And that it comes in a unit because that, that what I'm, what it sounds like from what you're saying is we have the ability to break these pieces apart. And in that we can 
think different thoughts. We can look at things differently. We can, you know, we can respond differently and our brain is just going to do whatever it is that we tell it to do. Once you switch out of fear mode, yeah. once you switch into love and gratitude, we know that gratitude scientifically upgrades your immune system. Now, that sounds funny. Once you change the signal coming into the TV, the TV plays a different movie. Yeah. Once you change the signal coming into your central nervous system and your, your brain, your adrenal glands, they dance to a different tune. They begin to see things. And, you know, speak what you say is an amazing thing because people don't realize that the brain also has a reticular activating system. So the reticular activating system is a very specific scientific part of the brain. And what it does is it stops your brain from being overloaded. So if you were to think of everything that could possibly happen at this moment, we'd panic. So the brain is only allowing you to become consciously aware of a limited amount of possibilities. Mm -hmm. It deletes everything else before you even become consciously aware of it. So we don't see everything that's out there. We don't hear everything. And the reason for that is to keep us safe. But you might ask them, well, what if it's deleting some of the good stuff? And that's a great question. So how do you know what it deletes? Well, long before Google ever came up with an algorithm. So if I go to Google or any search engine every day and I look for, you know, a red car for $30,000 and I do that every day, then lo and behold, I'm suddenly going to see more and more red cars, more and more right. ad for red cars. What I won't see is ad for blue cars. So my, it becomes an echo chamber. Right. But the brain has its own echo chamber. It is called your reticular activating system. Everything you think about, the words you use, the things you listen to, the people surround you become your echo chamber. So those things that you speak about becomes the things that you become consciously aware of. And everything else that is different to that is deleted before you even see it. So we are literally becoming unconsciously blind to the things we don't speak about, to the things yeah. we don't think about. Yeah. Even that's an amazing thing. Yeah. And, and even, and I mean, as you're talking about this, I'm like, I always go back to, I talk a lot on the show about our span of control, right? Because it feels, I hear from people, I, I, you know, I don't have control over this or I can't, you know, everything's out of control. But what you're saying right there is we completely have the control. The control comes from the little things. The control comes from the thoughts in our head. The control comes from what we consume on, um, you know, on a daily basis. If we're constantly bombarding ourselves with negative things versus if we're staying away from that and um, focusing on things that are more like nurturing and more good for our soul, right? The, these, what we think of control is I, I, what I, what I'm hearing after we're talking and what is a big realization for me is it's not these huge things that we often think about. It's the day to day. It's the minute to minute, hour to hour things that, that happen, small things every day in our life that seem so in, in, insignificant that are actually the biggest part of our life that um, set the tone, set the tone and set the signal that's coming into our brain, which was, which is what we experience in life. Exactly. And one of the greatest books I ever read is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, concentration camp uh, survivor. Yeah. And he had every right in life to be angry and bitter, and he had every right to give up in the goodness of life. But he made a decision that he was not going to become his environment yeah. in order to be different to you. So we live in a world where there is anger, there is judgment, there is labels. People have been segregate, segregated, separated. There is war. We know all of that. Right. And I'm not saying we can deny that for one second. But if our thoughts, our emotions and our energy becomes equal to the environment, then we can't change the environment. We simply become an extension of it. Yeah. Only love 
heals anger. Yeah. Only peace triumphs over peace. So when you look at people like Martin Luther King, Gandhi, the greatest leaders were people who refused to become their environment. So Viktor Frankl refused to become his environment. And every day in a concentration camp, he discovered things like meditation, visualization. He said, I, I'm not my environment. And if nobody else in here is interested in love and kindness, I'm interested in it. And he discovered something that even in that environment, he could change his emotions. He could change his chemistry and biology. And he said this simple but beautiful thing. He said, we don't always get to control or define what happens to us. Mm -hmm. But we at every moment get to control and define how we choose to respond. Yeah. Words we choose, the things we think about, the food we eat, they're our choices. Yeah, we have and control. He's, one, the other most important thing he said between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our ability to grow and to choose. Mm -hmm. But if we're eating processed food, if we're low on food, if we're anxious, we're closing that stimulus. And then that space. So when something happens, we become yeah. conditioned reflexes without even thinking we just hit back. We just eat yeah. the bar, eat the chocolate, drink the wine, send the email. And we're doing things we're not even thinking about it. Yeah. When we stop, when we breathe, when we meditate, we're expanding, we're opening the neocortex of the brain, we're shutting the amygdala down, we're now creating space and we're asking in this environment, who am I choosing to be? What words am I choosing to use? And ultimately, the biggest question of li in life is a, a question that I ask my clients all the time. What would love do? Mm. So you might have every right to be angry and bitter. But even if you're angry and bitter at someone else, it's you that's been eaten up. It's right. your central nervous system that's reacting to it. Right. So you might have every right to be angry, but you have a freedom not to be. Yeah, what would so love powerful. Do? That is so powerful. Jerry, you are such an inspiration and this has been, and you're a fascinating person. This has just been an amazing interview. I want to, um, I wish we had more time, but unfortunately we're coming up to the end here. Um, can you let the listeners know how they can find more about you and your book? Yeah, my book is called Awaken Your Power Within. Um, uh, you can find me on Instagram. It's at Jerry underscore Hussey, H-U-S-S-E-Y. And uh, our business is Soul Space. My wife is a pharmacist, but she spent so long in pharmacy and got to the real pinnacle of her career as a pharmacist and then realized that this isn't the way to treat medicine. This isn't the yeah. way to treat illness. Rather than treating sickness, what if she went out and spent dedicated her life to keeping people healthy? So we have a business called Soul Space. And um, the book has launched recently in the US. Um, I'm getting some a lot of great feedback at the moment. Yeah, yeah I saw and a lot of good reviews on Amazon. It's great. And I did a, a lovely show with Bernie Seagal recently. And um, I, I now the next step is for me to go to the US. I've never uh, say what you speak. So uh, I can't wait to go and, and, and share this message in the US. It's the next yeah. step for me. It's a big step. Um, so um, if you know anyone that's looking to, 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 to bring, not bring me out, but um, anyone that would give me a platform to speak about this because it's my life mission. It's been my life mission since I was probably 11 or 12 years old. And I've just been blown away by how, how, how warmly I've been received in the U S by the book. Yeah. So, um, yeah. It's amazing. Getting out there. 
Yeah. And like I said, this book, I felt like it's the, it's all the questions you could ask yourself in in one place, the the most important questions. And as I said, you're such an inspiration. I I absolutely love the book. So thank you for joining us today. It's been my absolute pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Create What You Speak podcast brought to you by webtalkradio.net. You can also hear the podcast on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and your favorite podcasting platform. I'm Sloan Fremont, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode of the Create What You Speak podcast, where we will continue to free our minds, expand our consciousness, and untangle those thoughts and patterns that keep us from living the life we desire. Check out my website, sloanfremont.com, to learn more.